0: It is a uh, privilege to be able to gather together and to study God's Word. So if you'll uh, take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4. And uh, this is big. This is big. We're looking at the temptation of Jesus one last time today, maybe one last time, I think so. Uh, But specifically, uh, we're going to be looking at the third temptation of Jesus that's recorded here. And if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know that we've looked at the context of the temptations, that was one, and, and the setting for the temptations, and we've been uh, spending most of our time looking at the nature of the temptations, the, the first two temptations and now the third. We're looking at the third temptation of Jesus, and to be honest, it's pretty uh, challenging Preaching on the temptations of, of Jesus, first of all, because this is such an important moment, uh, the temptation, and yet it's it's hard because there are just so many uh, different angles from which we could look at it that any one angle by itself almost feels insufficient uh, you can't say everything all at once, but you almost feel like you need to. You need more than one mouth as you look at the temptation because it is uh, just so full of important truths. So, for example, we need to talk about, for sure, obviously, uh, one, we need to talk about how this temptation helps us be certain about Jesus because that's part of the purpose of Luke. He told us at the beginning that he's wanting to help us be certain about Jesus because he is making You remember big claims about him. According to Luke, Jesus is the one who is God's answer to all the problems of the world. Chapters 1 and 2 and 3 are all about that and culminate in this amazing moment where God rips open the sky and looks at Jesus and makes an announcement and says, You are my beloved son. In you, I am well pleased. And you know, in case we're not exactly sure what he means by that, Luke points out the significance of what God says by giving us a genealogy that draws our attention to another son of God named Adam. And so it's almost like there's a compare and contrast going on. And Comparing Jesus to the first Adam is exciting because we know God's plan for the first Adam was to represent God and to represent us as he brings the whole world into submission and fills this world with God's glory. But it's also a little scary, I guess. It's exciting to see the comparison, but it's scary because we know what happened to the first Adam. I mean, he failed and was sent into exile And actually, if we keep reading scripture, there's another son of God that we meet before we meet Jesus in the Gospels, and their name was Israel. You remember the story. You remember Genesis. There's all this bad news, Genesis 3 through 11. Then bang, Genesis 12, and God makes a promise to someone named Abraham. Good news. Your descendants are going to bring blessing to the world. They're going to be the means I use To reverse the curse and then exodus god saves them and you know what he calls them he calls them the son of god and yet we know what happened to them as well they failed and were sent into exile and so it's good news at the beginning of luke to hear that someone is coming to provide salvation and it's exciting for sure to hear god call him his beloved son But we may wonder a little, if we're familiar with the Bible, because we've kind of heard something a little like this before. I mean, you understand, when it comes to God's plan for fixing the world, we know that God is able to do this. That's not a question. But God is stooping down to use man, and it's him we're wondering about. It's almost like we're looking at two parties as we read this story, making a covenant. And the one party, God, we know he can do all the stuff that he promises to do in that covenant. But it's the other party we're concerned about, man, because man keeps failing on his end. And so we look at Jesus here in Luke 4 and we're asking, can we really be certain about him? Especially when later we see he ends up getting crucified. That is one reason the temptation in the wilderness is important. It's one angle for looking at the temptation. It's a reason we can be certain about Jesus, that he really is the beloved son of God, and that he really is able to do everything Luke promised. He is able to defeat the devil. He is able to overcome evil. Another angle, though, that I think is helpful is to see how this temptation gives us perspective as to why people were uncertain about Jesus. Because what you have in the temptation, essentially, is two different ideas about what it means to be the Son of God. That's what's going on here. Two different ideas about what it means to be the Son of God, the devils and Jesus's. Because I think what may be might surprise you when you read this for the first time, is that the devil is not really questioning that Jesus is the Son of God. He's questioning how. How are you going to accomplish this work God's given you? Because the devil has his own ideas, actually. And what the devil thinks about how it's supposed to work, how it should work, is the way most people think about it, actually. Which is important, because later in this gospel, Jesus is going to get crucified, and that's going to cause people to question, is he really the fulfillment of the Old Testament? And it's almost like at the beginning of the gospel, here in the wilderness, we're getting an explanation, some perspective, about why that created so many questions. Because Jesus is going to make it clear later on that the problem is not with the cross, actually. Jesus is going to say that the cross is clearly a fulfillment of, of the Old Testament, and yet people weren't seeing it, even with Jesus there, even with Jesus specifically saying it, the disciples weren't even seeing it. And what's keeping them from seeing it? It has to do with with how they were thinking about sonship, how they were thinking about what it meant to be the Messiah. And as we look at these temptations from the devil, which reveal how he thinks about it, it's almost like he's speaking for the majority, really. But not for Jesus, that's the thing. There are two different versions of sonship here, and we're going to see both claim to have some biblical support. And so here, Luke's like, at the beginning of his gospel, who are you going to trust to interpret the Bible, Jesus or the devil? That's another angle. It shows us, one, how we can be certain about Jesus, the temptation, and two, It helps us understand where uncertainty comes from. Those are two angles, important angles or views or ways of looking at the temptation. A third angle that's important, though, is what we learn from the temptation about how we can be certain like Jesus. And you hear the words like Jesus because that's a little different than before. I I said we learn why we can be certain about Jesus from the temptations. That's one thing. That's important because he is the object of our faith, Jesus. But you know, he's not just the object of our faith, Jesus. He is also the supreme example of what it means to have faith. And so Luke is not really just telling these stories so that we can be certain about Jesus. He is also telling these stories so that we can learn to be certain from Jesus, I mean, as we read this story, we're watching how Jesus responds to temptation. He's being tempted. We're watching how the devil tempts Jesus and how Jesus responds. And so, of course, we know there are some ways in which what is happening to Jesus in the wilderness is unique and has to do with how God's saving us through him. And we read this and know, we should know, that definitely, clearly, Jesus went into the wilderness as a man with a specific work that he was called to do, a a work that we're not called to do in the same way, actually. But at the same time, we have to remember as we read this that he did go into the wilderness as a man. And that's important, too. We watch him overcoming temptation, and we're being given reasons he deserves to be the object of our faith. But as we watch him being tempted, he is also showing us how to exercise faith. This is how you can be certain. He's giving us an example, and his example is significant because while Satan tempted him in some unique ways because of who Jesus is as the only begotten Son of God, Satan fashions the temptation he uses out of the same old materials he uses on us because of who Jesus is as fully man, which is why we're looking carefully at the nature of these temptations. We talked about the context of the temptations, the setting for the temptations, and now the the nature of the temptations. For a couple weeks, you could say we're talking about that one point, the nature of the temptations, because Satan, you know, has some pretty set strategies. You see the times... He tempts people in the Bible, and you read about the nature of temptation, and it seems like Satan's got some pretty established schemes he uses over and over again, and actually because of Jesus's uniqueness and because of the significance of this moment in God's great salvation plan, looking at the way he tempts Jesus here is especially important because we know that Satan is only going to go after Jesus with his best strategies not as easiest ones and as we've been looking at the temptations the past couple weeks i hope you're seeing just how subtle and dangerous and even really universal these temptations are it's funny because in some ways they are so unique to jesus turn these stones into bread receive all the power and glory and authority over the kingdoms of the world throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple. Those are unique temptations to Jesus, obviously. And yet, if you look a little more closely, they are some of our core temptations as well. These temptations, I think of them almost as root temptations. It's kind of like, you know how there are symptoms and there are causes, and so there are things that we do that are problems, but they're more symptomatic. They're not really the issue, their symptoms, and then there are other things we do that are core, are are root issues, and they're root issues because a failure there is what causes so many other failures everywhere else, and as Satan tempts Jesus, he goes past, straight past, some of those symptomatic kind of issues, superficial issues for the root ones, tempting Jesus in areas that are foundational and fundamental everything else. Like, for example, for for starters, Jesus' relationship to God's word. If you look at the nature of these temptations, each of these specific, specific temptations is an attack by Satan on God's word. First, he wants Jesus to ignore the word. That's where he begins in temptation number one. Then second, when that doesn't work, he offers Jesus a substitute word. And then third, since Jesus doesn't accept that, he goes back and twists the word. In the first temptation, turning stones into bread, Satan is attempting to get Jesus to make his own desires, his standard for living, rather than God's word. He, he takes a good desire that God's given Jesus and says, focus on that. This is what should set the direction for your life, how you make your decisions. You can forget God's word or at least ignore it. Luke writes, verse 1, and Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were over, he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. That's the first temptation. And really, it's basically like the devil is asking Jesus, when you're in circumstances where it doesn't look like God's taking care of you, are you still going to be so serious about submitting to God's word?'" You might say God's word is fine as an additional extra, but for real life, getting your desires met is where it's at, which is still a pretty core temptation for, for us, but doesn't work on Jesus. Though he's able to turn stones into bread, he won't because he's living his life in submission to the authority of God's word, which is probably when why when that doesn't work, Luke tells us, the devil attempts another strategy. After tempting Jesus to ignore God's word, Satan gives Jesus an alternate word, another revelation to depend on. Luke writes, and the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it's been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve, which is the second temptation. Satan knows, as humans, we are made to live our lives on the basis of counsel. Anyone who tells you, I determine my own destiny, is a a liar or just ignorant, because there's no one who does that. Absolutely no one. We're made to listen to counsel. And so the devil, knowing that men need direction, offers Jesus what looks like an easier plan for his life than God's, one that focuses on the now and avoids suffering altogether. And it's as if the devil is testing how loyal Jesus is to his Father. It's kind of like he's saying, you want to be religious? Okay, that's fine. Depend on the word and all of that. I hear you. But what if I give you another word that offers all the good stuff that you're wanting and deserve, but takes out the suffering? Will you still be faithful to God then? In fact, what if I offer you to the whole world and all I ask for you in return is to stop worshiping God? Will you really turn down my offer of the whole world just to keep your relationship with God right? Which, as far as temptations go, again, is pretty core, pretty fundamental. Are you going to submit to the word of God or your desires first? Then we press on that a little. But where does your allegiance fundamentally lie? With the gifts or the giver? In other words, if you could have the gifts without the giver, would you want it? And Jesus, of course, doesn't. He sees these temptations for what they are and expresses his commitment to worshiping God alone. And so the devil moves on to a new tactic. First, he suggested Jesus forget the word. Then he suggested an easier word. Now when that doesn't work, he goes back to God's word and quotes it, but twists it to mean something it doesn't. Luke tells us, and he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. This is the the third temptation. And again, if you're talking root issues, core issues, this is definitely one. The devil is always going to come after your faith in God's word in one way or another. Either he wants you to forget it, to replace it, or to twist it. He tries to get you to live apart from it, or to make decisions on the basis of something instead of it, or to fool you into thinking it means something it doesn't. That is one very clear strategy we see in these different temptations. But if we look a little more closely at the nature of these temptations, I think there's a second, a second core issue that is closely connected, or maybe you could even say it's the same issue, only a little more specific, because it's not really That Satan is just trying to get Jesus to question God's word theoretically. Like this is some sort of academic debate. It is more specifically that Satan wants to get Jesus to question his father. His father's attitude. His father's care. His father's plan. He is attacking Jesus' relationship with his father. It's like, I know he has said, you are his beloved son. But really? So in the first temptation, when Jesus' desires aren't being met and he's hungry and he knows that it's his father who led him into the wilderness and it's his father who isn't seeming to provide for his good physical desires, Satan tries to get Jesus to question his father's love. How can you believe your father really loves you when he's not taking care of your physical needs the way he should? Then in the second temptation, he moves on to question God the Father's plans for Jesus. It's like, I know God has made promises about doing you good in the future, but think about all the suffering you're going to have to go through to get there. Can you really trust a father who would let you go through all that? I mean, how can God be a good father if he doesn't provide you what you want when you want it? And how could God be a good father if his plan involves suffering before glory? That's the First and second temptation. This third temptation, the one found in verses nine through twelve, the one we're gonna finally be looking at today, builds, I think, on these previous ones. Since Jesus has held strong and expressed his faith in God the Father's ability to provide what he needs when he needs it, and prove that by not going outside of his father's will to turn stones into bread. And since Jesus has held strong and expressed his faith in God the Father's plans for his future inheritance and prove that by not compromising and accepting Satan's offer, but setting his face towards the cross. In this third temptation here, it's as if Satan is coming to Jesus and asking him, all right? Okay? I get it. You believe God is for you now and in the future. You believe this is his plan, and that's a good thing, biblical, I'm sure. But still, how can you really be so confident How can you be so sure that the Father is going to be faithful to his promises? How can you be certain? Which is a good question, actually, not just for Jesus, but for us as well. How can you be sure? Because you need to be sure. Not not arrogant, obviously, and, and not... I never have any questions. That's not what I'm talking about. As Christians, we struggle with doubts and questions. But at the same time, God does want you to be sure that he's good and that he's for you and that he's going to keep all these great promises he's made about salvation through Jesus. God, I struggle maybe right now, but I know you're faithful. I know you're good, and I know you're going to keep your promises to save through Jesus like you said you would. And that kind of certainty about the character of God and the promises of God and what God is accomplishing through Jesus is fundamental to almost everything else, which is why we find Satan constantly attacking it. He wants you to be unsure that God is for you. He wants you to be unsure that God is going to keep his promises. And he's always trying to get you to question that. And you know, the the truth is, sometimes it's really easy to, in the middle of the difficulties of life, to get confused and to start wondering, how can I know God's for me? How can I know that God's going to do what he says he's going to do? Which puts us in a really spiritually dangerous position. That's the thing. It is easy for us to start compromising or looking for outside-of-Scripture solutions. And it's maybe why Satan took advantage of this opportunity with Jesus out in the wilderness In the middle of these difficult circumstances, starving basically after 40 days, tired, I'm sure, with only wild animals as his companions, to see if he could get him to start wandering the same. If you look at how the temptation goes, Satan takes Jesus, Luke tells us in verse 9, to Jerusalem. Now, if you compare this with Matthew, Luke actually changes the order of the temptations. In Matthew, it ends on the mountain with the temptation about worship. And Luke ends in Jerusalem, and that's just because he's a preacher. It's not a contradiction or anything. He's just organizing his material a certain way for a certain point. And so Jerusalem is the place where Jesus is going to get executed in this gospel. It's associated with the rejection and crucifixion of Jesus. And later in this gospel, we're going to see that Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. He's determined to go to Jerusalem actually because he knows he's supposed to die there. And so Satan is taking Jesus to this place where he's going to die this horrible death. And specifically, it says here to the pinnacle of the temple. And the word pinnacle means basically just a very high point. And we don't know which high point for sure because the language is vague and the the temple was massive. So there are options. It, It could have just been a high temple gate Or apparently there was what they call a royal porch on the temple's southeast corner, which loomed over a cliff, actually something like a 450-foot drop. Could have been either, but it doesn't really matter too much which high point it was. It was high. That's the point. It was so high that if Jesus fell from this height and nothing supernatural happened, he would die. Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem, sets him on the pinnacle of the temple, and says, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down from here. Or you might even say, since you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. Which at at first, honestly, seems like a very strange temptation. I mean, you wonder, how is that even a temptation, really? What's going on with Satan? Is Satan just, you know, so frustrated that he doesn't know what else to, to say at this point? So he's like, ah, if you're the son of God, Jesus, just die, you know, just die. But obviously, if you think about that, it wouldn't be much of a temptation. So there must be something more going on here. And I think noting that this takes place in Jerusalem at the temple is a start to understanding what is going on here. Because if you think about it, you really do have to ask why did the devil take Jesus all the way to Jerusalem to the temple to ask him this? Because there were plenty of mountains all around him there in in the wilderness, I'm sure. There were lots of high places. And so it can't be that Satan is just looking for a high place because there were high places around them when they were back in the wilderness. In fact, they had just been at a mountain. There there had to be something special about this high place. And of course, if you know anything about the significance of the temple, you know there was. The temple was a significant place. There was no more special place to Jesus on the whole planet, actually, because the temple represented where God came down to dwell with his people. In fact, if you remember Jesus, back when he was 12 years old, he was so committed to this place, to the temple, that when his family went back from celebrating Passover, went back home after they had been in Jerusalem for over a week, Jesus stayed back, back at the temple. And when his mother came to ask him why, he was like, isn't it obvious why? This is my father's house. Yeah. And there's a sense in which that was almost literal. That, that, that's the thing, to, to say that. Like, this is where God lives, because we know that God can't actually be contained in a building, but still, it's clear that God's special presence was meant to be experienced in a unique way at the temple. This is where God was, which is why when Jesus said later on that if someone destroys this temple, in three days he would raise it up, it was so shocking, because that wasn't just like someone saying, tear down the building where Cornerstone Bible Church meets, and in three days I'll build it up again. It seemed way more blasphemous than that, because you were talking about where God dwelt. Are you serious? Destroy God's house. And the point is that when we read the devil taking Jesus to the temple, when we read Luke saying Jesus, the devil takes Jesus to the temple... We're reading that the devil is taking Jesus to the place that represents, in a sense, heaven on earth. And it's like he's saying, all right, here we are. We're in your father's house where God dwells, and you say that you're his son. And I'm not arguing with you. Okay, you you are his son, but still, you know Jerusalem. What is going to happen here? You're going to die. So why don't we just get some assurance? Let's get some certainty right now. And prove it once and for all with a little test. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. And this time, to add to the challenge, I suppose, the devil doesn't just stop with a temptation. He decides to add in a little something extra. And tries to make what he's intending even more clear, maybe more authoritative by quoting scripture. I don't know. Maybe because Jesus answered in verse 4, it is written. And then in verse 8, he answered again, it is written. Satan decides to try it himself in verse 10. He says, for it is written, which is ugly. It's an ugly thing when Satan quotes scripture. But you have to understand that he does. The, The mere use of words that are found somewhere in the Bible doesn't make what someone is saying biblical. Just because someone quotes from the Bible doesn't make him trustworthy. In fact, this is one of Satan's favorite strategies to quote the Bible. He is a preacher. You might say he's sometimes a Bible preacher as well. He's got scripture memorized probably more than most of us, and here he's quoting Psalm 91 verses 10 and 11, and he's quoting it word for word. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, he says, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone, which is actually a really good psalm to go to, because Psalm 91 is a psalm about God's loving care and protection, kind of for his people generally, but especially of a particular person who puts his trust in him. And if you know the psalm, it begins boldly. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And then it uses all these word pictures and makes some really astounding statements where the psalmist describes God's wholehearted commitment to rescuing that person. He will deliver you, he says. He will cover you. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow, arrow that flies by day, nor the sickness that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague will come near your tent. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Which obviously are some really big promises. And saying here accurately, again, actually tells Jesus that these promises are ultimately about him. He's the particular person that Psalm 91 is especially about. If you're listening to that last line carefully, it's clear this is messianic. Because in the Old Testament, the serpent you will trample underfoot It's almost like a line from a movie, Luke, I am your father. Everyone knows you're talking about Star Wars when you say that, and the serpent you will trample underfoot, everyone knows you're talking about Genesis 3, and the Messiah defeating Satan, which makes this so ironic, right? Because this is Satan quoting that, the serpent, (laughs) I mean, Satan's not just a Bible preacher, as someone said. Here, at least, he's a Christ-centered Bible preacher. He's preaching from the Old Testament, and he's applying what he reads to Jesus. It's like he's taking all these promises that were made to Jesus there in Psalm 91 and saying, let's test them now and prove that they are true. Because I think this is probably why the temptation to jump would have even been tempting to Jesus, because after 40 days alone in the wilderness most of them being tempted and tested by the devil. You remember, it wasn't just three temptations. Luke makes it clear. It was an onslaught of temptations. These promises, after all of that that we read in Psalm 91, might not have seemed quite as sure, quite as certain, as they did before. We all know it's one thing to know that God is able to keep his promises and that God's for you when everything's going well, but it's something different when you're by yourself, when you're under attack, When you're suffering and nothing seems to be changing, when your circumstances are difficult, it's easy to start wondering if what God says about salvation and being for you is really true, like here with Jesus. If you think about the situation he's experiencing, because he's trusting the Bible, that's what he's been showing Satan, but then Satan quotes the Bible. And the Bible says, talking about Jesus, it says, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, which is a, a great promise. But really, look at what's happening to Jesus, because who's more evil than the devil? And what could be more of a plague than 40 days being tempted by him? And so it's like Satan is using these circumstances. This is his strategy. It's not that he thought Jesus wanted to die. No, of course not. He, does, he doesn't think Jesus is suicidal. The opposite. This temptation was much more subtle, much trickier than that. What Satan is trying to get Jesus to do is force God to give him a visible sign that would demonstrate once and for all that he really could trust God's promises, that he could count on them. That's where Satan is saying certainty would come from, which I know most of us can probably understand. We can understand why Jesus might have wanted that. He's out there in the wilderness, and he's saying, look, I totally depend on God's word, and yet he's starving. And he's out there, and he's saying, I'm willing to do whatever God tells me to do. I'm totally committed to his plan, and yet he knows that plan means he's going to have to be nailed to a cross and crucified. And so we can totally understand why it might have been tempting for him to say, you know, if I'm going to live like this, and I'm going to, I'm committed to this, but maybe I should at least just, just get some sort of visible, unmistakable sign once and for all that God the Father is going to do what he said he would because he will. God keeps his promises. And so it's not that Satan telling Jesus to take a, is, is telling Jesus to take a risk by jumping off the temple. This is not risky for Jesus. Instead, the opposite. Satan is saying, let's just take the risk out altogether. You won't even really need to trust God's word anymore. You'll have this sign so that when you go about your mission and later you go to the cross, you have no question that God the Father is for you and going to keep his promises. In the the first temptation, Satan was trying to get Jesus to doubt the depth of God the Father's love. The second temptation, Satan's trying to get Jesus to doubt the wisdom of God the Father's plan. And this third temptation, Satan is trying to get Jesus to doubt the sufficiency of God the Father's word. Is the word of God really enough? That's really the question behind this temptation because God the Father had clearly said he loved Jesus at his baptism. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. And Jesus knew from the scripture God the Father's plan, suffering, death, then resurrection, and then glory. And so the whole question behind this temptation really is, Are those declarations, are those statements, is that word, is that promise enough? Because for a lot of people, it isn't. (laughs) While while they have what the scriptures say, they aren't satisfied. They want God to give them something more because God's word doesn't feel sufficient to them. And so if you ask them why they lack certainty or, or why they're not willing to obey, they might feel justified, like, I want to, but I need God to to prove himself the way I decide God should prove himself if I'm going to believe him and do what he says. And so they have all these conditions that they want to base their faith on. And, and some, the way they talk to God actually, you know, it's, it's almost like they think they are God. They're demanding God to do this and that. And their argument sort of is like, God, You have to prove yourself. You have to vindicate yourself. If you give us prosperity, if you give us health, if you give us what we want, then it will prove once and for all to everybody that you really are on our side, that you are faithful. Which, you know, is is what some think was happening with Satan and Jesus at the temple, actually, because they think if Jesus had jumped and the angels had rescued him at the temple, which was this holy place in Jewish people's minds, that this would have been a public proof that Jesus really was the Messiah. And so it could be that Satan is suggesting to Jesus that this is the best way not only to assure himself that God's going to keep his promises, but also to prove to everyone else that he was who he was claiming to be as well. The the best way to be certain is to force God to give you some visible sign. And look, I don't know really if I'm presenting Satan's argument very well, but as I was thinking this week, I just felt more and more like that Satan's suggestion is actually where a lot of people think faith and certainty come from. How it should work with God. They think this is basically legitimate. I don't have to believe God and obey God unless he proves himself the way I say he, he should. The way I want him to. And I'm kind of going on about this, actually, because this is going to be a theme in Luke. Luke. Because Luke wants you to be certain, and this is one thing he wants to prove about certainty. He's going to come after this attempt to find certainty outside of God's word. So, for example, if you go to Luke chapter 11, verse 16, Luke says, Some were testing Jesus, and they were seeking from him a, a, a sign from heaven, and he rebukes them. And in the middle of this rebuke in Luke 11, there's a lady who shouts out, and she says, you know, you who's really blessed, it's the person who is Jesus' mother. And you can imagine the way she's thinking. But Jesus says, verse 27, Luke 16, 27, you know who is blessed? Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He's rebuking people for looking for these signs, and he's highlighting the blessing of God's word and saying God's word is, is an even greater blessing than being physically related to me (laughs) and should give more assurance than even that. And next verse contrast, verse 29, Luke 16, he says straight out, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Then over in Luke 16, there's a story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is in hell. And you know why he thinks he's in hell? The rich man, this is a famous story. You can look it up if you're not familiar with it. But the rich man is in hell, and he thinks he's in hell, he says, because God's word wasn't enough. That's why he tells Abraham, send Lazarus back. And Abraham says, no, I don't need to send Lazarus back. They have the Bible. And he says, no, father, no, talking to Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, if they have that kind of miraculous sign, they will repent. And Abraham says, Luke 16, verse 31, he says, if they won't listen to God's word, nothing will satisfy them. In other words, if you won't listen to the word of God, there's no sign that is going to do you good. And why Luke is going on about this and, and thinks it's so important for you to understand that One is because it's true. Certainty assurance doesn't ultimately come from these physical signs. In fact, when we finally get to the climax of Luke, Luke 24, Jesus is risen from the dead. And that's a miraculous sign, obviously. And yet we're going to see that the disciples are not benefiting from it. They're still confused and they're sad until you know what happens. Jesus explains the scriptures to them. And that's where everything changes, because that's where certainty comes from. And two, that's one reason Luke is going on about this, but two, he goes on about this because demanding this kind of certainty outside of God's word in this way that the devil is suggesting to Jesus is not faith, it is not spiritual, it is arrogance, I mean, this is a big deal. If you look at Jesus' response back in chapter 4, verse 12, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, which makes this clear. He takes it seriously, what the devil is saying. Why? Because listen, it's not because he doesn't think God will keep the promises he made in Psalm 91. In fact, what's funny is that in the very next story in Luke 4, the Bible's amazing. I wish I had, we had more time. But in the very next story in Luke, God keeps this very promise. As Jesus preaches a message that the people that didn't want to hear it, and the people listening get so angry, they try to throw Jesus off a cliff. And what happens? He just walks through them. Sometimes compare and contrast those two stories. It's, it's, it's amazing. And so Jesus is totally willing to put himself in a frightening situation when it's because he's seeking to be faithful to God's word, when it's about obedience. But this is something different, clearly. He calls it testing. Why? To understand why, we should look at the story Jesus is referencing, because the statement he makes, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, is like a hyperlink, actually, back the book of Deuteronomy, which is the book Jesus has quoted three times now, specifically Deuteronomy chapter 6. And Jesus is only quoting half the verse here, but the second half of the verse continues, Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And so apparently something happened at Massa that Jesus saw the devil was trying to get him to do as well. Maybe you remember it, you remember the story God had taken his son Israel into the wilderness to test them as part of his preparation for them being a nation that would make an international impact for his glory, and yet it wasn't long after Israel had been taken into the wilderness, they started quarreling with Moses and really with God because they didn't feel like they had enough water to drink, and so they started making demands, give us water to drink and do it this way. And what was really behind their demands wasn't so much that they were thirsty, this was more like just an opportunity, because really the issue, and now we're getting to it, this is the test. That's what Deuteronomy calls it. They were testing God, which means what? What does it mean to test God? That's important. And you kind of have to to see why this is serious. You kind of have to think about what does it mean to test anyone? I heard someone put it like this. He said, it's to evaluate them which is what a teacher does, right? A teacher gives a test to evaluate their students. And a teacher is able to do that because the teacher has more authority than his students. And so in and of itself, there's nothing really wrong with someone testing someone else. It's like I heard someone say, when California forces you to take a driver's test, you don't sue California because a test in and of itself isn't wrong. So what's, what's the problem? The problem is who is doing the test? So God's allowed to test you. If God tests you, that's totally fine. If God puts you in situations where he's testing your faithfulness, he has every right to do that because he's God. But what happens when you test God? What happens is you're flipping the relationship. You're saying, I want to put God in a situation where I can evaluate whether or not he really is faithful. And the way that people test God is they try to put God on trial to force God to act a certain way, either by disobeying him or by being reckless. And that's not spiritual. That's not faith. That's arrogance because that's forgetting who is the father and who is the son. And yet I know sometimes it it doesn't feel so wrong because we're like, but my circumstances are so difficult. And what God's calling me to do is so hard that's why I'm upset. That's why I'm shaking my fist. That's why I'm unwilling to obey. I just want to be sure. I just don't feel like I have enough reason to be sure. But really? Is that really the issue? You have to think, is that the issue? Because I mean, first of all, think about the people of Israel for a minute. Because how many signs did they already have? And yet, even with all that proof, the moment they were delivered from Egypt and faced the first sign of trouble, they were like, you know what? We need more. And while it's easy to give them a hard time, we can fall into the same trap when things aren't going the way we like. We start to get uncertain, and we start forgetting who is God, who is in charge, and all the kindness he's already shown us. I need more if I'm going to believe you're going to be faithful. I need more if I'm going to submit to your plan. I'm going to set the conditions here. And I know sometimes we think, I'm not asking for much here. I'm not. I'm, I just want God to demonstrate his faithfulness here the way I'm wanting him to. But look, remember how God has demonstrated his faithfulness already. Because God has already been at work in your life in multitudes of ways. And so the problem is not a lack of proof, actually, the problem's deeper. Because the reality is God has worked in your life, if you're a Christian, in miraculous, supernatural ways. I mean, you're here hearing the word of God. And I don't know how you got to church today, but somehow God brought you through all the things he brought you to get you right here. And one of the reasons he brought you here was so that you could hear the word of God, hear him speak. What do you think of that? And as you sit here, most of you, you have a Bible on your lap. And that's something that's easy to take for granted. But have you thought about all the ways God has worked throughout history just so you could have that book? The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by about 40 different authors. And you can think of all that God did to teach those men, help those men, preserve those men, so they could write exactly what he wanted them to write. And why do you think they wrote what he wanted them to write? One of the reasons they wrote what they wrote was for you. And even after they finished writing, God has done all kinds of work to preserve the Bible so we didn't lose it, even when it came under attack. And there have been countless numbers of men whom he raised up to take the Bible into all kinds of different languages so that people like us could read it. And, you know, some of those men, some of those great men and women died so that we could have this book. There are all kinds of men and women who died so we could have the scriptures. So when you're questioning God's faithfulness to his promises and God's concern for you, what do you think of that? What if I took thousands of years to write you a letter and I used 40 men to write it, and then I raised up and commissioned good men who I knew would die so that letter could be delivered to you? Would that be proof enough that I'm faithful and that I'm for you? Would you think you needed more? And on top of that, if you're sitting here saved, this is something supernatural. I sometimes wish I could introduce you to an unsaved version of yourself. This would make for a, a strange movie, I know. But if you could somehow meet the you but unsaved, not a Christian, I don't think you would recognize you yourself. The things that interest you now, they would have no interest to your unsaved self. You would say you want to read the Bible. They'd be like, what? Come on, let's watch sports. The things that make you sad now, they would be the kinds of things your unsaved self would rejoice in. You hate sin, you're disgusted by it, but your unsaved self, he would love it and just want more of it, and he wouldn't be able to understand what you're making such a big deal about. And I guarantee you, if you somehow met an unsaved version of yourself, you would walk away amazed by all that's taken place in your life, and you would say, how did that happen? How did that happen? How could I be so different? And, of course, the answer we know is not found in us. But, God, our salvation is something supernatural. And if you're saying, I just want some sort of sign that God loves me, I'm not sure how you can ask for much more than that. I was dead, and now I'm alive. There's your sign. The reason we doubt God's faithfulness, why we're uncertain, he's going to keep his promises or that he's for us. And I mean the kind of uncertain where we're shaking our fist at God, or we're disobeying God, not the uncertain where we're just like, God, help. I'm talking about the stubborn uncertain. The reason we're uncertain like that is is not because we don't have enough proof. And it's not even ultimately because of the difficulties of our circumstances. It's because we don't trust God's word. We don't like God's plan. And so we're starting to forget who is God and who is not. And so if we're going to be faithful, what we need is not actually for God to do everything we tell him to do when we tell him to do it the way we want him to do it, because we're sons, not the father. And so instead, we need to follow the one victorious son's example. And like Jesus, the obedient son, submit to God and trust God's word, because God's word is enough. God is God. My job is to obey him, not to test him, which I'm guessing at some point in your life is going to be a temptation, because we're living in the era of the cross, the era of pick up your cross before Jesus comes back. And in fact, I think if you look closely at your temptations, while on the surface they might look very different than Jesus is in the wilderness, I'm guessing if you look closer at the nature of the temptations themselves, you we'll find there are some striking similarities. Satan wants you to question God's word, and he wants you to doubt your father. And so whether he's using the fact that your desires aren't being met the way you like, or he's using your fear of the future, or perhaps he's pointing you towards your circumstances to cause you to become insecure about your father's plan and your father's attitude, Satan is always trying to get you to be uncertain to get you to be uncertain that God is going to do what he said he's going to do, to doubt that God the Father is for you, that God the Father can provide for you, that God the Father's plans are good for you, that God's word, that God the Father's word is really true. And overcoming those temptations begins with a commitment not to allow your desires to dominate you, but to make God's word your standard for living by refusing to accept, substitute, revelations and counsels that downplay the cross and not being fooled when Satan attempts to twist God's word into saying something it doesn't. That is how Jesus battled Satan and won. He he made the word of God his source of life because he knew his father loved him. He refused to accept false teaching just because it made things sound easier. He trusted his father's plan and he didn't question God's love for him by demanding a sign. He just accepted his word and believed God was for him. And in doing so, he proved to be the object of our faith, but he also provides us an example of what it means to have saving faith. Do you believe that God the Father will do everything that he said he would do? Do you believe that God is for you? Even when you're not getting what you want, even when your desires are unmet, Will you still make God's word your standard? Will you follow the plan he's laid out in scripture, even if it looks difficult, and not accept substitute advice that makes things easier if it means disobeying what God's clearly said? And finally, will you be content with all the, way God, all the ways God's told you in his word that he's for you and obey, refusing to go outside of scripture and take a shortcut, even when you're in circumstances that are difficult and confusing? And that don't seem to make sense. I pray we won't just read this story of temptation and go away unchanged, but that we will, by God's grace, learn to follow Jesus and emerge victorious from temptation. Let's pray. Lord, once again, we just say thank you for providing your, for speaking to us and for providing such a great Savior who overcomes temptations and overcame temptation for us and also, in doing so, shows us how. May we be a church that believes you and remembers who's God and who's not. And we ask this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. (laughs)